This podcast is a story of the attack on a party of police officers by Ned Kelly and his gang in 1878 at Stringybark Creek. The narrative has been developed from historical sources. They are reminiscences of a Victorian mounted constable, a narrative of the Kelly gang and other bushrangers by Thomas McIntyre, evidence from the 1881 Royal Commission on the Police Force in Victoria, historical guidance from the Victoria Police Museum, and content produced as part of the Stringybark Creek Memorial Site. McIntyre was pinned, his back against the fire, four guns aimed at his chest. The sharp smell of gun smoke curled through the air. He blurted, oh God, my time has come. He knew he was about to die. Kelly demanded to know if McIntyre was armed. He pleaded that he wasn't. Kelly asked where the guns were. In the tent, stammered McIntyre. Dan Kelly flung around to face the tent and shrieked for whoever was in there to come out. McIntyre urged that he and Lonigan were the only two in the camp. Ned Kelly approached McIntyre. He searched through the constable's clothes, patting him down, looking for any weapons. Kelly was a solid man, 23 years old, almost six foot and muscular, with thick black hair, sharp features and a thin mouth. He seemed calm and focused. After all the time spent searching, McIntyre was now face to face with Kelly, with a gun between them. McIntyre's heart thundered. Every movement and moment was amplified, thinking it could be his last at the whim of the four men ready to shoot him down. He was frozen in fear. Satisfied McIntyre wasn't armed, Kelly jumped the log and examined Lonigan's body. He picked his revolver from its pouch. Dear, dear, Kelly said, what made the poor fellow run? He crossed to the tent and retrieved McIntyre's revolver and the shotgun. He finally ordered the gang lower their guns on the policeman. McIntyre looked behind him to see Lonigan. He was lying on his back, arms and legs flung out, head thrown back. He was silent and still. Dan Kelly brought a pair of handcuffs from the tent to restrain the new prisoner. Although he just witnessed another policeman slain and had an armed gang prepared to kill him too, McIntyre couldn't accept the injustice of being handcuffed by a murderer. He steadied himself enough to appeal to Kelly directly. What's the use of putting these on me? How can I get away and you all armed as you are, he said. Kelly, probably to everyone's surprise, agreed. This is better, he said, patting his rifle. But don't try to get away or we'll shoot you if we have to and we'll follow you all the way to the police station to do so. Dan Kelly threw the handcuffs away. According to McIntyre's account, his appearance was quite strange. He was dressed in clothes far too big for him. When he turned around, there was almost nothing of him visible. He seemed to crackle with nervous excitement. McIntyre did not know the other two men. He would later learn that they were Joe Byrne, 21, and Steve Hart, 19. The gang moved to the tent, pushing McIntyre with them. Dan Kelly, Byrne and Hart raided the policeman's food. McIntyre watched as they consumed everything. How surreal this would have been for McIntyre. Barely a few minutes earlier, he was quietly gazing into a warm fire, waiting for Kennedy and Scanlon. Lonigan was still alive. Now he was watching his bread being eaten by men who just killed his friend. However, he strangely began to feel calmer this close to death. He was acutely aware of each moment, 
but fear and panic seemed to disappear. In his manuscript, McIntyre later wrote that the surprise of the attack alarmed me, but the shock of Lonigan's death, instead of increasing that alarm, seemed to brace my nervous system to such an extent that I became abnormally cool and observant. His gaze fell on Ned Kelly. Kelly was loading the policeman's shotgun with his own shells. He then reloaded the rifle he'd used to kill Lonigan. McIntyre stared at the gun. It was a beaten-looking weapon. The stock was tied to the barrel with wire, and a split in the stock was held in the same way. Kelly noticed McIntyre watching. A curious old gun for a man to carry about the country with him, Kelly finally said. Perhaps it's better than it looks, replied McIntyre. I'll back it against any rifle in the country. I can shoot a kangaroo at a hundred yards, spat Kelly. Who's that over there? Nodding to the body in the dirt. Lonigan, replied McIntyre. It is not Lonigan. I know Lonigan well, Kelly said. McIntyre confirmed that in fact it was. Kelly observed the body, reconsidering. I'm glad of that, he finally said cheerily. The fellow once gave me a hiding in Benalla. Kelly had held true to his promise and got his revenge. He joined the rest of the gang in the tent to eat what was left of the police's food. They at least seemed to like the bread. McIntyre was left outside. His eyes strayed to the body of Lonigan, sprawled in the dirt. In his manuscript, he recalled, I tried to keep myself from looking at it, lest it should unnerve me, but my eyes wandered back in spite of myself. The pallor of death had spread over his countenance, and the setting sun, the last I ever would see, I fully believed, had cast long shadows of the forest trees over his body. McIntyre began to pray. In his account of the attack, he wrote of the want of a connecting link between the immensity of the Creator and the frailty of mankind. Held captive, deep in the bush, he felt alone, helpless. His thoughts turned to how he might warn Kennedy and Scanlon that they are walking into a trap. The bush completely concealed the campsite on approach. By the time the two men would enter the clearing, it would be too late. It was also clear that at least Ned Kelly was an excellent shot. McIntyre estimated that between all the guns the gang had, they could fire as many as 37 shots without reloading. With Kennedy and Scanlon the only police armed, they were hopelessly outgunned. McIntyre played out the possible scenarios. How could he get himself, Kennedy and Scanlon out alive? Could he run, flee into the bush while the gang was preoccupied? It was possible, but he was outnumbered and could be hunted down by just one of the gang who knew the land better than he did, let alone four. It would have been too difficult to run in his heavy riding boots through the undergrowth. They were cumbersome and he would probably break an ankle before he could get far enough away. Besides, Lonigan tried to run and Kelly shot him through the eye. Byrne interrupted McIntyre's thoughts and offered him a smoke. A strange show of kindness which McIntyre accepted. It was a fleeting moment of relief until Kelly ordered the gang to prepare for the arrival of the patrol. Time was running out for McIntyre to think of a plan. Dan Kelly and Byrne went back into the long grass and rushes while Hart stayed in the tent. Ned Kelly concealed himself behind the fallen logs. He knelt on one knee with two loaded guns at his right, looking down the creek over Lonigan's body. 
McIntyre was ordered to stand in position on the opposite side of the log to Kelly. They waited. The camp fell silent. McIntyre's mind and heart raced. Was he going to die? How could he warn Scanlon and Kennedy? His thoughts were halted by an interrogation from Kelly. Crouching in his hiding place, Kelly demanded to know how the search party had known about this campsite and why they were carrying a shotgun. McIntyre replied that the site was known to people in Mansfield and that the shotgun had been brought to shoot kangaroos. He urged that they had no idea that Kelly was hiding so close to the camp. They believed he was holding up somewhere much further east, near the King River, over 20 kilometres away. None of this satisfied Kelly, repeatedly threatening that he would shoot his prisoner. He asked about the two men out on patrol. What are you going to do with them? begged McIntyre. Because I'd rather be shot myself a thousand times than tell you anything about them. You can depend on me not shooting them, Kelly replied, but you must get them to surrender. I don't want their lives, I only want their horses and firearms. Perhaps this could be the chance McIntyre needed. If he can warn Kennedy and Scanlon that they are walking into an ambush and get them to surrender, they could all be spared. Whatever hope McIntyre saw in this opportunity seemed fleeting when Kelly asked his next question. What guns did the two men have with them? McIntyre faltered. Kelly again threatened to put a hole through him. McIntyre knew the response he'd get from the answer. He admitted that the other two men had a Spencer rifle. Kelly flew into a rage. Well, that looks as if you've come to shoot me, he hissed. The Spencer rifle was a far more powerful weapon than the revolvers the police were issued with. In the right hands, it would be formidable. To McIntyre, it seemed Kelly made up his mind that the party was out here to shoot him, not capture him. McIntyre's thoughts turned to his family back in Ireland and how they would deal with the news of his death from the other side of the world. He asked Kelly that if he was captured by police, to tell people that McIntyre's life was insured. With no family in Australia and unmarried at the time, McIntyre hoped that Kelly would help his family in this small way so that they would be supported after he was gone. It was as close as he could get to declaring his last will and testament. Kelly was unmoved, saying, I suppose some of you fellas will shoot me someday, but I'll make you suffer first. McIntyre believed his life was over. Kelly was gifting him whatever time he had left. The only possibility of saving the other men was disarming Kelly before Kennedy and Scanlon got close enough to be in any danger. Kelly's guns were at his side. McIntyre thought he could perhaps jump him before he took up a weapon and warn the others. Unfortunately, something in McIntyre's movement betrayed him, and Hart, who was hiding in the tent, warned Kelly. Kelly lifted his gun as he eyed McIntyre. There seemed no way out. McIntyre pleaded that the lives of the two men be spared. Kennedy had a wife and five young children. Scanlon was a kind, gentle man. It didn't sway the captor. By this stage, the sun was sinking behind the top of the tree line. The firelight glowed brighter in the greying bush. McIntyre had now been held hostage for almost 30 agonising minutes. Maybe, thought McIntyre, the men wouldn't return that night. Kennedy had said they might not make it back. Maybe they had decided to make camp somewhere and would arrive in the morning. But what would happen to him? Would he see the night out as the gang's prisoner? Could he make a run for it during the night and find the others? The pressure of the situation was unbearable. What are you going to do with me? Are you going to shoot me? He blurted. No, I could have shot you half an hour ago if I'd wanted it. What about the others? Will they shoot me? They can please themselves, Kelly replied. He might not shoot McIntyre, but he wouldn't stop the others. 
He was going to die one way or another. And then came the sound that McIntyre dreaded, the thump of horses' hooves. Kennedy and Scanlon had returned. Lads, here they come, hissed Kelly. McIntyre pleaded, For God's sake, don't shoot the men and I'll try to get them to surrender. Go and sit on that log and give no alarm, or I'll put a hole in you, said Kelly, clutching his gun. McIntyre did as Kelly instructed. He knew they would be gunned down like Lonigan if he didn't convince the men to surrender, even though he probably didn't trust Kelly to keep his promise. His heart drummed in his chest as he took his place. He felt Kelly watching him and braced himself to be executed. He barely sat down when the men came into view. Kennedy rode in first. Scanlon, with the Spencer rifle, was several metres behind. McIntyre stepped towards Kennedy. As he was about to tell them to surrender, Kelly shouted, Bail up! Hold up your hands! Fear split through McIntyre. To his shock, Kennedy smiled. He thought McIntyre and Lonigan were joking. In jest, the sergeant put his hand onto the revolver pouch. Kelly fired. The bullet flew over Kennedy's head. Oh, sergeant, I think you'd better surrender, for we are surrounded, said McIntyre. Kennedy realised something was seriously wrong. He flung himself off his horse. McIntyre spun to see Kelly and the gang break their cover. Scanlon saw Lonigan's body sprawled on the ground. Shots rang out through the trees as the Kelly brothers, Byrne and Hart, fired a volley of bullets. Scanlon grabbed at the rifle as he dismounted the horse, but he lost his footing and fell. McIntyre saw him stumble to get up. He heard Ned Kelly fire a shot and blood seeped from Scanlon's jacket under the arm. McIntyre watched Scanlon die, scrambling on his hands and knees. Byrne, Hart and Dan Kelly ran at him. This was it. But in the chaos, Kennedy's horse bolted straight towards McIntyre. Faster than he could think, McIntyre latched onto the reins as the horse thundered past him. He climbed into the saddle and took off. The sound of gunfire cracked behind him. In his manuscript, McIntyre wrote of these terrifying few seconds. Thought is quicker at times like these when reflection is dispensed with. Any death is preferable to standing to be shot down in cold blood, to be shot doing something, or even to be wounded and escape from the power of these wretches would be immeasurably better. Jumping on the horse was a matter of instinct, the will to flee overpowering any other thought. McIntyre burst away from the camp, but the horse suddenly stopped. He kicked his heels in desperately as he heard Dan Kelly cry to shoot him. The horse leapt forward and McIntyre flew back, barely holding on. Shots cracked behind him. The horse crashed through the bush. The calmness and awareness McIntyre felt, while at the mercy of the Kelly gang, vanished. He was consumed with a panic and desperation to live, which grew with every passing second. There was hope he could escape, but he wasn't safe yet. The police's horses were still all at camp, and the gang could mount up and follow him. McIntyre plunged and crashed the horse through the bush. Branches and leaves sliced at his face. If the Kellys didn't kill him, a fall from the horse easily could. Once he got his horse under control, he turned west towards the Benalla Road. He could find help from there. Then McIntyre saw it, but all too late. A tree branch cracked into his chest and flung him from the horse. McIntyre slammed into the ground. The world turned black, and he tasted blood. McIntyre gasped desperately, trying to draw air back into his lungs. He saw, tasted and smelled blood. He was bleeding from dozens of wounds across his face, head and arms. He slowly lifted his body. Everything, especially his head and back, was in agony. 
The horse had stopped just up ahead. McIntyre shuffled to it. He heaved himself onto the animal and limply heeled it to get it moving. But the horse didn't go more than a trot. McIntyre eased himself to the ground. He pulled the saddle and bridle off, threw them into the scrub and turned the horse loose. He could barely take much more of the animal's movements anyway and proceeded on foot. He came to a hollowed out tree and collapsed inside the trunk, taking a few moments to catch his breath. He tried to think through the pain, think of a way he could get out of the bush alive. The sky was darkening and he would soon at least have the cover of night to conceal him, but he needed a better hiding place until then. As much as he didn't want to move, the tree wouldn't provide much cover from the Kelly gang, who would no doubt be looking for him. He rose slowly and moved on. Staggering further through the bush, McIntyre found the perfect shelter, a collection of wombat holes big enough to completely conceal him. McIntyre lowered himself into a hole facing west towards the lowering sun. He was completely hidden in the earth. It was ironic that after being so close to being murdered, the best refuge he could find was akin to a grave. He collected his thoughts and took out a small notebook. He wrote what had happened, that he was held hostage by the Kelly brothers and two other men, that Ned Kelly had killed Lonigan, that the gang had waited in ambush and then killed Scanlon. The fate of Kennedy was unknown. McIntyre hid the notebook in his jacket. He hoped that if he was captured and killed by the gang, they would not find his book. If his body was recovered, there would at least be a record of what had happened. Capture was almost all McIntyre could think about. Crashing through the bush would have left a clear trail that any skilled bushman could have easily picked up. He heard what could be men moving through the bush while he hid. Perhaps what was more extraordinary was that McIntyre, again unknowingly, had in his frantic escape ridden closer to the Kelly hideout. Their base was northwest of Stringybark Creek, exactly the direction that McIntyre rode from the policeman's camp, almost directly north, then west. Hiding in a wombat hole, he was as close to danger, if not closer, than he was at Stringybark. McIntyre waited until nightfall to move. He kept his eye to the west towards the Benalla Road. If he could find that, he could make it back to Mansfield and find help. As soon as it was dark, McIntyre crawled out of his hiding place and set off. He picked a star to guide him. As the night went on and the stars slipped below the horizon, he picked another, continuing this process as he went. But the bush was unforgiving. The light of the moon was suffocated by the cover of the trees. McIntyre stumbled and heaved himself up and down hills and gullies. He staggered through streams and creeks, soaking his boots. As the night wore on, his feet chafed so badly that he had to take one boot off and make his way in his sock. He made excruciatingly slow progress. His body stabbed in constant pain, and he had to stop frequently to rest. His back stung, and head felt as if it would shatter. Finally, he lost track of the guiding star. Alone in the darkness, in the middle of the bush, being hunted by a murderous gang, McIntyre was now lost. It was too dark to check the compass. He patted his clothes, hoping for a match. Thankfully, he found three. McIntyre crouched next to a log. He covered his head with his coat to hide the firelight from anyone who might be nearby. He struck a match, only for it to burn out. He struck another. This time the flame held, 
and in the flickering light, the needle of his compass told him he was going west. He was headed in the right direction. He rose stiffly and slowly continued on. The soft hue of sunlight crept into the sky. McIntyre had been walking all night. He was exhausted, beaten, and in constant pain. As he trudged through the scrub, he heard a rustling noise in the distance. He froze. Figures as tall as a man were moving in the long grass and ferns ahead. Slowly, McIntyre padded his way through the undergrowth. The figures took shape in the soft light. It was a mob of kangaroos. The grazing kangaroos were a serene sight compared to the haggard man wandering just a few metres away. They were so calm, completely untroubled by his presence. McIntyre estimated that he would have been close to the Benalla Road once day finally broke. The heat of the sun was already intense. It was going to be hot. He took out his handkerchief and set it on his head. He drank deeply from every stream or creek he came across. Water was the only thing sustaining him by this stage. By 9am on the 27th of October, he was almost spent. His body was at breaking point. He believed he might not even make it to Mansfield, and on the bank of a creek wrote another entry in his notebook. He had travelled all night non-stop and was badly injured. An hour later, McIntyre glimpsed a small hut in the distance. Hopefully someone was there and could help him. Although still cautious, his pace hurried. As he approached, he could see smoke rising from the chimney, and standing in the doorway of the hut was a woman and small child. At last, his nightmare was almost over. The woman and child disappeared from view. McIntyre headed towards the smoking chimney. Thoughts of salvation spurred him on. He could rest for a time and then go for help. But as he got closer, the smoke vanished. Coming to the hut, he saw it was empty. It was abandoned and had been for a long time. McIntyre's heart broke. His ordeal was now in its 17th hour. He'd been on the run in the wilderness for most of that time. In incredible pain and without sleep or food, he was now hallucinating. He rested at the hut, collecting himself and wishing for a cup of tea. He pressed on. At midday, he came to another farm. The journey could soon be over. He approached slowly, careful not to be seen. He spotted a group of horses nearby. Two of them looked like horses from the police's search party. McIntyre thought that if they were, the Kellys had made it to the farm and likely held it up and would now be waiting in ambush for him. So he kept going, desperate for help. At 3 p.m. in the afternoon, now 22 hours after first being captured by the Kellys, McIntyre came to a third farm. By this stage, McIntyre estimated he would have travelled at least 50 kilometres through the bush. He approached the home warily, trying to assess who might be there. Nothing seemed to be out of the ordinary. With a moment's hesitation, he swung the front door open. McIntyre had at last found help. You can find out more about the Stringybark Creek incident at the Stringybark Creek Memorial Site, located about 40 minutes' drive northeast of Mansfield. There you can find detailed information about the policeman and how the attack unfolded.